Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Margaret Chisholm will join us to discuss From Survive to Thrive. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Well, mental health disorders are a major portion of our society's illnesses, but rarely are they appreciated for the degree to which they influence lives. Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Margaret Chisholm. Dr. Chisholm is Vice Chair for Education, Psychiatry, and Behavioral Sciences, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, and Professor of Medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. She directs the Paul McHugh Program for the Human Flourishing, which fosters a humanistic clinical approach to patient care. Author of numerous scientific and popular works on the subject, she has penned the new book, From Survive to Thrive, Living Your Best Life with Mental Illness. Dr. Chisholm, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks. It's really exciting to be here. Well, certainly our pleasure. Certainly a great book that you've put together, Approaches to Dealing with Mental Illness. So it's something that I've been wanting to do for a long time. I've been seeing patients for over 30 years, and I use a certain approach that I was trained in at Johns Hopkins in my psychiatry residency of thinking about patients and evaluating patients. So it's handy to have a book that I can give to patients and their family members that describe the approach that I use, because the first question is always, what approach do you use? What kind of doctor are you? that it describes the approach and that can be used actually beyond Hopkins uh, with anyone who is interested in learning more about psychiatric problems and how to think about them and how to treat them. What are the types of approaches out there and how does the approach you employ differ? Well, you know, the approaches have changed over time in terms of psychiatric practice. Over 70 years ago, psychoanalysis really reigned. And so when you went to see a psychiatrist, Oftentimes, they were just listening to you without any kind of structured evaluation approach. These days, the DSM rules as a model for thinking about psychiatric illness, so that when you go to see a psychiatrist, often they're just asking you questions in order to see whether or not you meet criteria for these DSM diagnostic and statistical manual diagnoses. So that classification system really took over in the late 80s, early 90s, and has dominated the way psychiatry is practiced. That's not the best way necessarily of looking at mental health disorders? Well, it's a classification system that was designed for research purposes so that somebody in the UK who was studying a certain cluster of signs and symptoms in patients would be able to conduct research with people in, say, the U.S. who are also studying that same cluster of signs and symptoms. So it was to build reliability in research diagnoses. It was never meant uh, in its current form as a clinical tool. And in fact, it has pretty poor reliability. The field trials of one of the latest versions, the fifth version, found really low reliability among diagnoses like 
major depression, which is a, is, is a major diagnosis in the DSM. So the fact that this research tool has now been used to guide clinical practice is a real problem because it's a categorization approach to diagnosing psychiatric illness, which is very limiting. Classification that's based on categorization really lends itself to thinking about everything as a disease. And these are often nonspecific signs and symptoms. They're shared by many of the disorders in the DSM. So it's really a very simple way of thinking about complex human beings with complex problems. So, uh, you know, the person that trained me, Paul McHugh, he likened the DSM to a field guide for birds, right? So it helps you kind of classify on the basis of how things look, but it doesn't really help you understand the nature of one bird, you know, the family in which one bird belongs versus another bird belongs. It doesn't get to the origin of these familiar phenomena. And so the more the approach that you take is looking at things holistically, taking the whole individual and trying to understand the whole system. Yeah, we basically think that there are four explanatory methods necessary to understanding psychiatric problems, and any or all could be operating in any one person. When somebody comes to us with a problem, we'll think about them from these four perspectives, and we'll think, you know, how much of this person's problems is best explained by something that they've encountered in their life. How much of their problems is best explained with a person's own life story? So, I mean, everybody has a life story, just like everybody has a personality. So those two perspectives are really relevant to everybody that comes to see a mental health practitioner. So the life story is the most personal of the perspectives. It really is like a narrative in terms of its conceptual underpinnings, a setting, sequence, and outcome. These problems that are best explained by the life story perspective are problems like grief or even post-traumatic stress disorder. Even though some of these may have some biological underpinnings, the essence is not that something has come upon you like a disease unbidden. It's not something you have, but your problems are arising because of something you've encountered. And different people based on different personalities will encounter things differently. You know, some people feel things really strongly. So something that might not have much of an impact on somebody else might have more of an impact on them. And thus they might have more problems dealing with it. So it's really about how somebody deals with life events. Is it odd that mental health professionals don't take this more holistic approach? Yeah, well, I think because in the, say, 70s, there was a lot of conflict uh, that was beginning to emerge between psychoanalysis and between the more kind of biological psychiatry methods and uh, proponents. And so in a effort to avoid these theoretical conflicts, the DSM, an atheoretical approach. It was just sort of putting these signs and symptoms out there for people to use as a classification system. Again, much like a field guide to birds, it's going to be atheoretical. It's just based on observations, what what these problems look like, what just like what the birds look like. And in an effort to avoid that, they sidestep the problem that's more critical, which is what is the origin of these different problems that people bring? How do they emerge? 
you know, how does how does this go awry in terms of one's mental life? Is it because of something you're doing? Is it because of something that you have? Is it because of who you are? And that kind of depth of explanation, it's really what 100 years ago, Carl Jaspers in Europe was thinking about. You need to think about explanatory methods if you're going to move a field forward. And if you're going to help people, because your treatments need to be tied to what the origin of the problem is. So it was really an effort to sidestep these theoretical conflicts that the DSM emerged and sort of took over. And we've not ever really thought as a field recently deeply about the limitations of this approach and the fact that there are these other approaches out there. And the perspectives of psychiatry is really making explicit what good psychiatrists, um, good mental health clinicians do implicitly. They know that they have to understand who someone is as a person in order to get them well. They know that in order to support their recovery, they need to think about not the person as having only a disease, but the fact that a disease is occurring in somebody who is a meaning-making person who has explanations themselves for why something is occurring. So again, even if you have a disease, the life story perspective is relevant because you're giving meaning to that disease. And, And that's really important to getting better is being able to understand, help somebody understand why something has happened to them. For individuals who are seeking out, what should they be looking for in terms of being a good? Well, I highly recommend that whenever you see uh, somebody for a first-time evaluation, that they really ask a lot of questions. I mean, I spend over an hour. I always schedule somebody for two hours for the initial evaluation. This is how we're trained. We have a very comprehensive history that really has been passed down from Adolf Meyer, who was our first department director. And the history starts with the family history. And, you know, I ask people about their mother's pregnancy with them, their growing up years, their relationships, their jobs, their education. I ask them a lot of detailed questions about their life story. I ask them questions specifically to have a better understanding of their personality. And then I have I ask questions about things that they may be doing, you know, they're in terms of restricting food intake, for instance, or their interactions with or experiences with alcohol or drugs, their sexual experiences, all those to get a sense of how much of their problems might be related to things they're doing, as well as then asking uh, more recent questions about the more recent problem that's bringing them to see me, you know, whether or not they're experiencing problems with sleep and appetite and all those sorts of things, problems with their thinking, et cetera. So I would say you want somebody that's going to ask you a lot of questions, that's going to spend a lot of time getting to know whatever problem you're bringing to them, getting to know about that in the context of who you are as a person and what you've experienced in your life. So that's the first thing is you want to have somebody take a a thorough history. Secondly, you really want to make sure that they talk to somebody besides you. I always talk to an outside informant, a family member a friend, a loved one, so that I can understand their perspective. Because sometimes we people come with problems who um, that's distorting their thinking about themselves. You know, if you're depressed, you might think you've always been this way, or that you you might have distorted ideas about yourself or your 
history for that matter. So it's good to get another perspective or two in there. So that's another important idea. And the other thing I would say is it's important to work collaboratively with your mental health professional. After I evaluate somebody, I always ask them if there's anything that I've missed in terms of the questions that they think is important. And then I share my thinking about them. And I go through these four perspectives and say how much of each I think is really relevant to their current problem and prioritize based on those perspectives and the urgency of dealing with one problem over another or one aspect of their problems over another. So I think you want somebody that's going to spend time getting to know you as a person, uh, getting to know not only who you are, but the things that you've experienced in addition to what's going on at present, because you can't make sense of that. I can't make sense of current problems without knowing more about the person. Particularly fascinating was trying to get that outside perspective. I'm not sure that that is so commonplace in a lot of practices, but I think really necessary for getting that whole picture. Yeah, I often, this patient has given me permission to share the story of a patient who literally was in therapy for a year because he was feeling so guilty about an affair that he'd had. He was married. And this turns out this extramarital affair had never occurred. It was all a psychotic delusion. He was severely depressed. And finally, his wife came in with, to talk to the therapist and said, look, we work together all day. We live together. I can tell you, he's never out of my sight. He has never had an affair. And it was only then that he got the treatment that he needed. And it was because of having that outside person say that, you know, this is this never happened. This is a total delusion, which you wouldn't have known speaking to him because he was 100% as you are. One is with a delusion. He was 100% convinced of the reality of this experience. In your treatments of individuals and in, in your researching of the subject, has there been anything that's really surprised you? I, I mean, I have found this really helpful because pe- people are really complex and they can bring their complexity to the, the initial evaluation. And it's really hard to take somebody's entire life that they're telling you about and their current experiences. And it's hard without having a framework to think about this because it's, it's you know, can sometimes be very chaotic. And so how I see the perspectives is it's, it's really a framework for systematically thinking about people from all these different perspectives. And it helps bring order to what can seem very disordered and very chaotic when somebody brings you, you know, this set of problems. So it just helps me be able to organize my thinking around these four explanatory methods and make sure that I don't miss anything and don't just rush to thinking somebody has a disease or that somebody has a problem because of something they've encountered. Because sometimes things look very different on the surface than they do when you actually get to know the full picture. What's your approach then for using this information to moving towards plans for treatment, plans for therapy? Yeah, these are great questions. So every one of the perspectives has a conceptual, and the perspectives are the disease perspective, the dimensional perspective, which is about personality, the behavior perspective, and the life story perspective. Every one of these perspectives is an explanatory method that has a conceptual model underlying it. So each of those perspectives also has a therapeutic aim. So for the disease perspective, the aim is to cure or remedy the disease. So if somebody comes to us with 
say schizophrenia, then you know the goal, the num- number one goal is going to be to try to cure or remedy this disease by giving medications that help minimize, if not eliminate, the hallucinations or delusions, for instance. Somebody's coming and that we're thinking, oh, the primary driver of the problems, the things we want to prioritize first, is something in the personality realm, then our job will be to guide someone around the potential provocations that they might experience to which they're responding either behaviorally or in terms of their thinking problematically. If somebody is coming to us because they're doing something like restricting their food intake or problematically using drugs or alcohol, then our goal is going to be to interrupt that cycle of drive, which limits uh, choice and is reinforced by conditioned learning. And if somebody is coming to us primarily for a problem that we think is best understood from the life story perspective, then our goal is going to be to help re-script the story that the person is telling themselves. So collaboratively working with the patient to tell a more adaptive story, bring uh, a different meaning to what they've experienced that will support their mental health. So that's the first step is sort of figuring out what we're going to prioritize and what the kind of primary aim or the first aim of treatment is going to be. Then after somebody is thought about and formulated in that way, then we can begin treatment. At the same time, we can be working on other things that we know are related to well-being. So somebody can have acute symptoms of schizophrenia and those can go on to become chronic problems that no medication has been able to help, but they can still have a sense of well-being. And what supports well-being are these four pathways to flourishing, which are family, community, work, and education. So while helping somebody recover from their illness as best we can in terms of their functioning and their symptom control, we can also help them recover more personally by helping rebuild relationships with families or communities that can be supportive, that can bring meaning and purpose to the person's life. Also, we can help them seek the level of educational attainment that they would like, and we can also help them find employment if that's one of their goals. All those things can help people feel more happy, more satisfied with life, can actually support their mental health, can support their physical health, can bring them meaning and purpose, can bring them to have some close social relationships, can help them rebuild if it's been lost, some sense of character and values and virtues, all of which add up to a state of well-being, of thriving. Are any of these pathways more difficult than others? Well, it really depends on the nature of the problem. I mean, I worked for 10 years at the Center for Addiction and Pregnancy with pregnant women who were using drugs, primarily heroin, during pregnancy. And one of the things I noted was that it was relatively easy to help someone not use drugs during pregnancy. There was lots of reasons that people wanted to do that internally, and there were also external pressures to not use. They wanted to be able to make sure they retained custody of their child after it was born and things like that. But it was really hard to keep people in recovery drugs after they delivered. And one of the reasons was because they didn't have these pathways strengthened because they say maybe had stolen from their family members 
or lied to their family members and really had become very estranged from family. So that may take a long time to rebuild. While rebuilding that kind of trust, though, they could start right away into a community like Narcotics Anonymous, NA or AA, and start building relationships with a new group of people, people who weren't using drugs, which is really helpful to recovery. And people can go uh, back to school, they can work on their GED and try to um, further their chances of getting a a meaningful job that way. And then they can also uh, start in a lower skill level job. So the Center for Addiction and Pregnancy, because people weren't there that long, we didn't have requirements that people eventually start working. But the other addiction treatment programs on our campus, that is a requirement that Within a year, you are expected to get a job if you want to stay in this treatment program, because we know a job is going to be really helpful to maintaining your abstinence from drugs, because it's a it's a competing reinforcer. It's it's something positive that will compete with the positive reinforcement that comes with drug use, like euphoria or the avoidance of negative reinforcement, like going into withdrawal. So it depends where someone is. It might take someone who has really burned bridges with their family members. That might take them a long time to rebuild. But some of these other community engagements, some of these other pathways are generally easier. Any final words, advice for individuals trying to seek help with mental illness? Final words regarding your book, From Survive to Thrive. Yeah, so one of the main goals of writing this book was that I wanted to demystify and destigmatize psychiatric illness. And that was one of the main reasons I wrote this book. I share my own story of my own psychiatric illness, my brother's psychiatric illness, and I share many de-identified patient stories so that people can feel that they're not alone. And I also really wanted to give people hope that even if you have a really severe psychiatric disorder, and even if you can't necessarily cure that disorder, that you can still have a full, meaningful life in which you reach your greatest potential. So my goal in writing the book was really to demystify and destigmatize psychiatric illness and give people hope that regardless of the severity of their illness, they could lead a good life. We were just talking with Dr. Margaret S. Chisholm, the new book, From Survive to Thrive, Living Your Best Life with Mental Illness. Dr. Chisholm, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Happy to be here. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.